0: Uh, Revelation 6 and 7 is where we're going to be, so go. It's a race. Uh, it's in the back of the book. If you found the maps, you've gone too far. Alright, Revelation 6 and 7. I'm excited to be here with you guys again. We have a doozy of a text. Uh, if you've been following along in this book, or if you're familiar with this book, this is where this letter of Revelation starts to get uh, pretty interesting. Where We're going to get into the judgments, uh, so that's fun, right? Okay, we'll see. We'll find out. I mean, you guys sat under a net, so, I mean, that's, that's some faith there, but you can't leave now. We can drop it and catch you. But we're here to talk about some interesting stuff in chapter 6 and chapter 7 where we're going to get into some the judgments that are happening. And making sense of this letter can be tricky because you've got symbols and visions and numbers, and they all kind of have meanings, and it can be pretty tricky making sense of this. But what's fitting is it's also pretty tricky to make sense of life. When you're living and kind of going through life and you're wondering like, well, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why would God allow this? Why do we have to go through this? Where is God? Why is he intervening? And you're trying to make sense of this and it's not always easy to make sense of it at all. And then here's what tends to happen. <clears throat> here's what tends to happen. When you're suffering or you're going through hardships or you're walking through difficulties, you only can take only so much of that until you start to just feel like, I'm tired of this. Like, it just kind of sucks the hope out of you, or it sucks the endurance, and then that's your attitude. How many can identify with the feeling of just, like, I'm tired of the brokenness in our world. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of seeing the injustice. I'm sick of seeing the sin all over us. I'm sick of, like, I'm sick of just this brokenness of this world. Can you identify with that? I know you already raised your hand, but you you need practice. So let's, like, interact here a little bit. Um, Or what about when you look in the mirror and you're just like, I'm sick of struggling with the same struggles. I'm sick of my own sin. I'm just tired of that. And you walk through this and you can just, you can lose hope. You can feel like turning in the towel. But what if there was a perspective that we could have that would help us endure and help us not lose hope? And I think uh, that's what we get in this vision, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, let me help you see this differently. The broken world that you're living through, like let me give you a vantage point or a lens that's helpful to look through that. So if you remember last week, uh, we were, Ian was up here, we were in Revelation four and five, and you get this beautiful, glorious, kind of throne room vision of God and all His majesty. And John is in heaven, and what is he doing? He's crying, which is pretty interesting. And if they're not like tears of joy, he's frustrated. John is in heaven. Uh, in front of this glorious vision and he's crying and the reason he's crying is no one can open the scroll and the scroll is like the will of God or the plan of God or the ruling of God on our broken world and if no one can open the scroll we we'll, we're left in the dark like, what's going to happen? Like, what's this, who's going to do anything about all this brokenness around us? And then we're kind of left in the dark. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. So, like, heaven is great, and it's glorious, and there's some weird creatures there, and everybody's worshiping God, uh, and it's this beautiful description, but that's a lot different than the earth that John is experiencing. There's a big disconnect between what he's experiencing in the throne room of God and all the suffering and persecution and brokenness on earth. And he's like, well, who's going to do anything about this? Like, if we can't get this scroll open, uh, this disconnect remains. So who can do anything about this? And and what's the answer to that, church? Yeah, Jesus, the the lamb who's worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is going to do something about this. Now, the scroll begins to get open here in chapter 6 and chapter 7. It's important to remember, though, that the scroll here doesn't get open. We just start peeling the seals off. So if you picture a scroll rolled up, it's got seven wax seals across the scroll to keep it rolled up. Um, so the scroll doesn't get opened here in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, it's just starting to peel off the seals. So these are the things that precede the opening of the scroll. So we're going to dive right in. We've got a lot to cover. So starting in chapter 6, verse 1, he says this. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. That's my thunder voice. It's the best I can do. But you've got to get it. Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, just a heads up where we're going. We're going to get introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So that's the kind of fun Sunday we're about to have. And the first horse that we see is the white horse. Now, some people, they read this, and they think, oh, that's Jesus Christ. Because in Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding on what? A white horse. But I don't think that matches the theme here. So in chapter 6, the theme is like judgment and death. But in chapter 19, it's more like this um, righteous victory and retribution that Christ is coming. And here you're going to get introduced to death and war and famine. And we'll see that in a little bit. Um, So maybe another interpretation I think is more likely is that this represents just general military conquest and kind of this thirst for power. Um, Or or some people think that this can represent the Antichrist or the false Christ, um, whereas the real Christ comes riding in on a white horse, but he brings uh, restoration and righteous judgment. Uh, The fake Christ, who wants control and power, but is not made to lead, is not the real king, is just going to be followed by war and destruction and and death, um, which could be the case. But we're also told that we're going to see a lot of Antichrists. There's going to be many Antichrists to come, but we're told... Um, a lot of people are going to tr- try to establish their own rule. And part of God's judgment on earth are bad leaders. That's part of God's judgment. He's saying, hey, you're going to have bad leaders, people that are going to desire their own rule, their own control, their own power. And he goes in, we'll see the second horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So uh, following bad leaders is often war and destruction. You see that in the red horse. Um, And then we get into the next horse. So when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And he heard... uh, And he heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So scales in his hand, don't have like dragon scales. Think of like scales where you would weigh things. And he's saying, um, The price of food is going to be ridiculous. And he's talking about famine uh, that's coming. And then you get to the fourth horse. He says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So, a lot of fun stuff, right? This crazy, ridiculous judgment happening, and the fourth horse, the pale horse, uh, is Death. Uh, Now, the word that gets translated pale here, uh, most other places, gets translated green. You're like, what what do you mean? Why is it translated different here? What what they're trying to say is like, it's the color of sickness or the color of gross. Uh, It's the color of disease. Like you you look a little pale. You look a little green. Like you might be about to die type of, uh, he's saying, this is kind of what the pale horse is bringing. And it's something that follows the other one. You got bad, wicked leaders bringing war, (laughs) driving up food prices, um, disease and famine come in. Death follows though, follows all that. So you get the four horsemen of the apocalypse here. And this isn't something John is making up. He gets the idea of this from Zechariah, where you see the image of these horsemen, and it's a kind of a picture of God's oversight and judgment on the earth. But I want us to capture kind of the emotion and the, the mood of what's, of what's going on here. So you have this thunderous voice, come, and then out comes each horse. And then like another, like, come, and then out comes this horse. There's like this introduction, like, I don't... It's not this way, but if you could picture like this creature yelling "Come!" and then the folk and the 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 fog and the smoke comes up, uh, ACDC Back in Black comes on, and the horses come out like it's amped. It's like like a wrestling match, like it's ready to go type of intensity. Like these uh, horsemen of judgment are coming out to bring judgment on the world. There's that kind kind of intensity happening. Now we get to the fifth seal, verse nine. He says when. He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, I know it's really clearly stated in the text, but I just want to say it again. He's talking about people who have died for giving witness to Jesus Christ. These are people who have been martyred. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, there's something pretty comforting here, and there's something pretty challenging here. Um, What's comforting is to a group of people who are facing potential death for following Jesus Christ. We've kind of talked already about the uh, circumstances of the original audience, that that was a reality they were facing. They get a peek kind of behind that and they get a white rope. They're told to rest. They're with God. That, that's kind of life-giving information. But what's really challenging too is part of God's plan is that more of his people have to die. Part of his plan is that more of his people have to die. And notice even on the other side of death, in heaven, there is an eagerness for justice. Like how long, God, are you, are you going to wait until you kind of step in and bring this to an end? Like how long are you going to take till you avenge uh, our death and deal with the wickedness on earth? And they're kind of eager for this justice. But God, who is in control, his answer is like, just relax. Just rest a little longer. Just, just wait. Because part of my plan, it's what he says. Uh, they were told they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they themselves had been. So they're crying out for justice. How long, God? Until you kind of step in? And his answer to them is like, "Just wait. Part of my plan is more of my people have to die." That's troubling. He's like, no, that's my plan. Like, it's got to like, it's not complete yet. He used that word complete, as in there is a number of people that I have ordained and planned to die, and we haven't reached that number yet. Anybody find that troubling? Or is that comforting? A little bit of a mix of both. But he has this plan that needs to unfold. And here's what we need to see. In this language. And I'm going to give you part of the big idea now. And I'll give you the rest later. So you're like, oh, we get some of it. And you get, hang on, I'll give you the rest later. But here's the first part. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign, like he's in control. He's over it, over suffering. And you see it here. It's like, hey, part of my plan is my people's suffering. Part of my plan is the martyrdom of my people. And it's not just in that verse. Look, look at even at um, the four horsemen that are coming after the seals get opened. Well, who opens the seals? Jesus. And then you look at each horseman. To the white horse, it says a crown was given to him. It was given to him. Or to the red horse, he was permitted to take peace from the earth. Or he was given a great sword. Or the black horse was given orders or parameters. You can do this, but not this. Or to the pale horse, he was given um, authority over a fourth of the earth. Guys, God is sovereign over suffering. He's behind these judgments on the earth. His plan is playing out. And in his plan, it involves suffering. It's a little bit um, confusing for us. I mean, we can hear that. And we struggle with that idea. It's like, why? Why? God, if you love us, why? Why, why, wouldn't you, why would you allow that to happen? Why wouldn't you intervene? Why, why is this going on? And I don't know if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, but not that long ago we read the book of Job. You guys familiar with the story of Job? Like a righteous man who goes through all kinds of this ridiculous hardship and suffering. And you get a kind of peek behind the curtain at the beginning of that story. is Satan in the throne room of God who's kind of accusing the saints what he does. But God brings up his servant Job. He's like, hey, have you seen him? You see how faithful he is? And God allows Satan to persecute him, to make him suffer. And he just goes through it. And what's really crazy about that book is nowhere in the book, which I think would have been really helpful, if God went to Job, is like, Job, here's what happened, right? Satan's accusing you. Like, I was showing him the faithfulness of my people. He never gets let in on that at all. The only thing God tells Job is like, hey, you're on a need-to-know basis, and all you need to know is I'm God and you're not. Right? And he gets kind of this tongue lashing at the end of the book of like, hey, were you there when we hung the stars? No. So shut your mouth. Right? And it's just kind of like, I'm in control. You're not. But there's this suffering is actually a part of God's plan. It's a strategy of suffering. And what suffering does is it reveals true followers of God it purifies, it kind of uh, reveals that to the world, and it exposes fake followers of God, and suffering is happening. it is part of his plan. But this is what we need to see. God is in control of this. He's behind it. He's sovereign over this. And listen, as difficult as that is to swallow, we really only got three options when we try to make sense of suffering. Either you can think it's random, like, hey, it's a broken world and bad stuff happens. Some people get cancer, some people don't. Some people get in car accidents, some people don't. Some people get fired, some people don't. It's just a bad, it's just a messed up world, and it's just random. Or you can look at suffering and think it's retributive, like karma. The reason something bad is happening to you is probably because you did something bad, right? And what goes around comes around. And a lot of people think that way. Or when it comes to suffering, you can see it as redemptive, that there is a Sovereign God at work behind all things, and he's working all things for his good purposes. And the revelation of Jesus Christ to these persecuted believers and to us is saying, it's redemptive. Everything that you're going through, everything that you're walking through, there is a sovereign God over it, and he's working all things to his amazing end and his good purposes, and there's meaning behind it. All right, so let's get into the sixth seal. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. Who is that? Jesus, right? The wrath of Jesus. For the day, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can see? And so um, you have this apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type of language happening. The sky is getting rolled up like a scroll. Mountains are being removed. Islands are being removed. Stars are falling. It's like kind of end-of-the-world type of language. And what you're seeing here is that creation itself is being taken apart. Uh, Or you put it, decreation is happening to make space or room for a new creation. Because what happens at the end of the book? We get the new heavens and the new earth. So you kind of get this end of the world type of language. Like creation itself is being taken apart. One commentator put it this way. Humanity has become so perverted and has worshipped the creation over the creator. That's Romans 1 if you want to read that. Therefore creation itself has become an idol that needs to be removed. Creation itself is an idol that needs to be removed. Now, I want to get into maybe a deeper meaning behind that, but a quick out, just a quick rabbit trail. When it comes to addressing environmentalism, we just in the fall went through Revelation, or excuse me, Genesis. In the beginning of Genesis, you get this beautiful picture of creation, and God puts man in the middle of it. He's like, "Take care of it, um, oversee it, subdue it, like care for this creation." And we are stewards of God's earth. We are to care for this creation. However, when the talk turns to Uh, Mother Earth and our responsibility to save her. And if we don't do something quick, we're going to destroy our planet. We are denying the sovereignty of God over his creation. The destruction of Earth is beyond any of our pay grade. And it will come to an end. It will come to an end. The Earth will end. And this is how the Earth will end. And there's no stopping it. And there's no escape. Look again at kind of the reaction to this kind of cosmic Coming to an end here. It says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. All these people who thought they were in control and they're in charge. They're going to find out you are not in charge. And you are not in control. And you're going you're to hide yourself from the wrath of Jesus. Can you hide from Jesus? There is no escaping this. I don't care what your position is, what your title is, what your bank account is. Like the wrath of God is coming. Then there's no escape from it. And either what you worship will be destroyed or who you worship will be revealed. You get what I'm saying by that? Either when this kind of comes to happen, either what you worship is going to be revealed uh, or destroyed or who you worship is going to be revealed. Like, your reaction to the kind of the the end of the world, is it going to be like, no, or is it going to be like, yep, let's go, bring it on? Like, here he comes. Like, how are you going to react to this type of end of the world? Now, before we jump into chapter 7, let me point out a divide in interpretation moving forward. I just want to tell you, good and godly people disagree on this, so relax. Um, It's it's okay. Uh, We'll get through it. Uh, But we got seven sealed judgments. We're only going to see six of them in these two chapters. We've got seven sealed judgments, then we're going to have seven trumpets, then we're going to have seven bowls. And the question is, are these like 21 separate uh, acts of judgment happening one right after the other uh, in a small window of time at the end of history? Like a seven-year period of time, they get that from Daniel chapter 9, and that's called the Great Tribulation. Or is this is the great tribulation the period of time between the resurrection of Christ and his second coming? And the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are parallel looks at life in that period of time. Like this is what it looks like to be a Christian in this, this season. Or are they parallel looks at life between the first and second coming of Christ leading up to a more intense period of persecution? Now I tend to think it's the last one. Um, but even that can be tricky. And every kind of viewpoint has its hurdles they got to get over because if it's like all right well there's it's kind of increasing to a more intense uh time of persecution it might be like well for who because if you're a christian in sudan right now you're like it's pretty intense right but if you're homeschooling in montana you might like no it's going great i don't feel anything um, is this going to be some kind of like global like uh, feeling? Like what's what's happening here? Uh, but I tend to think it's like describing a life for the Christian between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that makes me think that if you go back to Matthew twenty four, the Olivet Discourse, um, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus about the end times. And he, here's what happens: as he sat on the mountain, Jesus on the mountain of olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Kind of like That kind of sounds like the white horse. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Okay, that kind of sounds like the red horse. And, and you will see, uh, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. It's like the black horse and the earthquake in various places, and it's resulting in death, and all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. And if something is the beginning of birth pains, I don't know, we've had a lot of new babies on our staff, uh, but if you start to have birth pains, what does that tell you? You've got a lot of labor left. There's more labor to come, right? It's just the beginning of birth pains. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Kind of sounds like the fifth seal. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased. so There you get that kind of increase of in lawlessness towards the end. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end. So, so think about this, guys. Um, When Jesus was asked, "Hey, when will the end come?" privately by his disciples, his first advice to them was, "Well, don't be fooled. There's going to have to be a lot of stuff that happens before the end comes." And then he goes in to describe wars and suffering and persecution and famine and martyrdom and bad leaders or, or antichrist. And then he says, "And then lawlessness will increase." Uh, or like birth pains, it's going to get closer and more intense and more intense, uh, and then, um, then you have a baby. Then the end comes, right? Then, then new life comes. So he's kind of seeing this uh, as a description of this is what life is like on earth for a follower of Jesus until he returns. And when he describes those things of like, okay, you have wars and rumors of war and bad leaders and suffering and persecution and famine and martyrdom, you're kind of like, that, doesn't that kind of sound like our history? Like from the time Christ ascended into heaven, it's like conflict, opposition, persecution, famine, wars, bad leaders, dictators trying to conquer. And yet, throughout that whole period of time, what it cannot be stopped. The spread of the gospel is going to the ends of the earth, whether that's Papua New Guinea, the Amazon Forest, New York, wherever. Like the gospel is going forth despite all this chaos and judgment that's happening. It's like, yeah, that kind of sounds like life for the Christian until he returns. So this image is like life on earth under judgment, but like, it's like, okay, we know that. We live that. Now, John, and this is what I think is important for us in chapter 7, is going to get a different vantage point of it. So let's jump into chapter 7. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So right away in chapter 7, you see these four angels holding back the four winds of the earth so that the earth will not be harmed. But you're kind of like, wait a second. Earth was just destroyed. ...at the end of chapter 6. So it can't be like chronological. So when he says, after this, then I saw this... ...it's not after this happened, then this happened. That wouldn't even make sense. But what he's saying is, after I saw that... ...then I saw this. I got a different vantage point of the same thing. Like I looked here and I saw this... ...and then it's like, hey John... Come check this out, though. And look at that same thing from a different vantage point. So after I was allowed to see that, then I got called and I was allowed to see this. So yes, in chapter 6, the vision that I saw was judgment and destruction and death. But then in chapter 7, the vision that I see is that judgment is being restrained. It's being restrained. Like I got a different vantage point. Of what's happening? So yeah, the the horse and like the creatures say, come, and out comes the horse, and it's going to bring judgment. But what I saw now is there's a leash on that horse. Like the, the winds, they're being held back for a purpose. Like judgment is being restrained; it's being limited. The harm is being limited because God is sovereign over it, and He's saying He's limiting it until the servants of God have been sealed on their foreheads. Now. Uh, we'll get into that more when we talk about the mark of the beast that's coming. But here's what you need to know. In Revelation, you're either marked by the beast or you're marked by God. In the book of Revelation, what's being put before people is like, you're either going to be marked by the beast or you're going to be marked by God. And it's really put before people. It's like, pick a side. <coughs> Who are you with? Pick a side. Do you want to uh, suffer now and be rescued by God? Or do you want to fit in now and be judged by God? Pick a side. That's what he's saying. Like, no more country music Christianity. You know what I'm saying about this? I know we got some country music fans in there. I'm with you there. But he's like, no more country music Christianity. Like, you can't sing about getting drunk, hooking up with your girlfriend, and going to church in the same song. Like, who are you with? Are you going to be marked by the beast in this world, or are you going to be marked by God? But pick a side. Nobody, nobody liked that country music thing. Like, you guys are now, you're going you're gonna to sing along on the way home, but you're here now, right? So listen up here. Like, he's saying, listen, you're going to be marked by the beast or you're going to be marked by God? And then you get this language, like, marked on their foreheads. And when we hear that, it's like, <clears throat> we've seen enough YouTube videos. It's like, I'm telling you, they're going to put a cute computer chip in your forehead. That's what's going to happen. They're going to track you. You're so worried about getting tracked by the government, but everybody's got a phone in their pocket. You're like, this is what's going to happen. Like, the chip's going in you. Like, let me just tell you this. The audience that John is writing to would have no concept of that idea. Like, it's is like John's like, no, they're going to develop computer chips someday. It's going to happen. They're going to put it in your forehead. They would not know what that even meant. But, listen to me, when they heard the language of being marked on their forehead, that would mean something to them. So the question is, what would that mean to them? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is the Shema, which is extremely important for a Jewish person, but this was, they would say it every day, like, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, or with all your heart, soul, and might. But you keep going, you got the passage up there? If you keep going down, maybe we'll get feedback. Um, <clears throat> go to the next slide, the end of the passage. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk about them when you sit at your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you let, lie down, and when you rise. We got it, yeah, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes or on your forehead. And, and Jewish people would, would someone took this literally, would wear a kind of a bandana with a box right here. And they'd take little pieces of scripture, rolled up, and put it in that box. He says this needs to be marked on your hand and on your forehead. And what he's saying is the word of God needs to shape your thinking, and it needs to shape your actions. Like this is what it means to be marked by God. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. The word of God is shaping our thinking. It's shaping our actions. We need to be people marked by God. I think this is conversion. Um, we become a new creation. And the seal is pointing to the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's more passages. Let me give you a couple. This is in First 2 Corinthians, I believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his what? seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee here's ephesians chapter one it says in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him when you became a christian you were what everybody now you were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory He's saying, I've sealed you. You're my people. Like, I've saved you. I've put my spirit in you. I've marked you. And and new life is evident, and you're, like, shaped by the word of God. You live by the word of God. It's like, those are my people. But I think going to the book of Ezekiel, um, which is all over in Revelation, helps us better understand, okay, what what does it really mean to be marked by the word of God? This is Ezekiel chapter 9 where this comes up. Starting verse 3, he says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had written a writing case at his waist, kind of the guy recording this prophecy. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads. So there you get that language again. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So what does it mean to be marked by God? Or who is it that God is marking? He's marking his people. Who are his people? According to Ezekiel, his people are the people who sigh and groan over sin. His people people are the ones who look at sin happening around the world and they're like, come on. Are you kidding me? We're going to dress up like Satan and sing a, a song called Unholy at the Grammys? Are you kidding me? Or this is what's being taught here. This is what we do. This is what our society, like, you're just sick of it. Like, God's people are the people who are not okay with sin. That's what he's saying. The people that just look at sin and are disgusted by it, he's like, those are my people. Those are my people. And we got a lot to groan about. We got a lot to groan about. And what is great about our cultural moment is there's no more sitting on the fence. Like, as our society gets more secular, it's like, Pick a side. Are you going to be marked by the beast? Are you going to be marked by this world? Are you going to be marked by God? And listen, church, this is important. I want you to get this. In our culture, Christianity is is going to become less popular but more potent. You know what I mean by that? When I say Christianity is going to become less popular but more potent, what I'm saying is um, you're not going to get any social points for being a Christian. In fact, that word's probably going to increasingly be used in a derogatory way. But it's going to become more potent. Because the people who stay faithful in that context, those people are going to be like, I still hate sin. I still see Jesus as my king. I still see my life for him. It's like, well, those are real Christians. No more lukewarm stuff. So it may get less popular, but it's going to get more potent because the people that stay faithful to Christ, they're going to be real Christians. And that's what's going to happen. But what John is kind of showing us here is that evil will be restrained until all of God's people are saved. All of God's people come to faith. So yeah, this judgment gets released. The horsemen go out. Judgment's happening. But John, can you get another look at it? Because what you do need to see is judgment is being restrained. And these angels are holding back this this judgment until all of God's people are saved. So yeah, there's suffering. But there's also a seal. And what, what God is saying is, there's suffering on this earth, but if you're my people, I got you. Even a part of my plan is that more people of mine have to die. But when they die, I got them. They've been sealed. They're mine. I can handle this. This is his judgment that's coming out. Let's keep rocking. Verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then you kind of get a listing of the different tribes of Israel with 12,000 in each tribe. That's where you get to 144. That's math. That just happened. Um, Now, here's the question. Is that a literal number or a symbolic number? And is it talking about a literal group of ethnic Israelites that will get saved in the future? Or is that a symbolic number of the completion of God's people? Because then you get after the, the 12 tribes get listed, the very next passage is chapter or verse 9 where he says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So another question, is that a description of the same group of people or is that a different group of people? And I think we get some clues in the text to help us understand that if you go back to the listing of the 12 tribes, uh, it's not listed this way anywhere else in Scripture. You know, like, was that a mistake? Like, was John just under a lot of stress and got it wrong? It's like, no, like, John's quoting the Old Testament throughout this book. He's very familiar with the Old Testament. But this is the only place where we see the list of 12 tribes listed this way. Why? And what's different? And what is he trying to say by what's different? Well, one of the differences is that Judah, um, the tribe of the Messiah, the song we sang about at the beginning, the line of Judah, uh, is listed first instead of Reuben, the oldest. And it's like saying, hey, there's a new chief over this people, it's the Messiah he leaves out dan and ephraim who are notorious in the old testament for idolatry like he's saying hey it doesn't matter who your dad is this is about being faithful and if you're not faithful you're not part of this family That's kind of the message of john the baptist and then you get the promotion of tribes that descended from concubines over the sons of leah and rachel and gad asher and Natalie, which is kind of suggesting hey the once excluded f- from privilege are now included So even in this list of the 12 tribes, it's like, this is a new look at the people of God. It's the people of God. It's just different than what you might expect. And it's a specific number. It's a big number. It's a round number. You got 12,000 from the 12 tribes. It's like all these tribes are full. They're complete. And what he's saying is, this is the completion of God's people that are saved. And it's a big bunch of people. But it's different than what you might expect. Because then you go into verse 9, and it says, um, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all the tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Now, notice he says, I heard the number, 144,000, but then I turned and I saw this great multitude of all tribes, tongues, and nation. Just like in chapters 4 and 5, when John Heard of the lion of Judah, but then he looked and he saw the lamb. So you're like, well, what is it? Was it a lion or a lamb? Yep. And now it's like, well, I heard the number of 144,000, but then I looked and I saw this great multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what is it? Is it the 144,000 or is it a great multitude? You betcha. It's like, get this different vantage point of he's saying. This is is every tribe, every nation. It's one people. This is the people of God. It's just different than what you expected. You heard this, so you might have thought this, but when you saw it, you were surprised. You you heard that he's going to conquer like a lion, but when you looked, he's a slaughtered lamb. And we have victory in the blood of Jesus. And it's like I thought like the nation of Israel and this tribe. But when I looked and I saw it, it's like made up of every ethnicity from all over the globe through the proclamation of the gospel. And notice the diversity of God's people. Like diversity is a kingdom of God thing. Diversity is a Christian thing. It should be celebrated. But we also have to look a little closer to understand what unifies This diverse group of people. Is it their culture? No. Is it their language? No. Is it their ethnicity? No. It's their clothes. Kind of kidding, but not really. Look at the text. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. They're all wearing the same thing. But what does that mean? All of them are saved by Jesus Christ. Everyone looks at Jesus Christ as their king, their savior, their redeemer. That's what makes them family. Nothing else. Like there's there's diversity in the kingdom of God. But there's one king. And everyone that sees that Jesus as king or family. That's what unifies us. God's kingdom is very diverse and exclusive. God's kingdom is very diverse and exclusive. Like every tribe, tongue, and nation. Everyone's welcome who bows. Everyone is welcome who bows to King Jesus. But God's kingdom will be diverse. The kingdom of God will be represented by every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, the point being made here is that God saves his people despite... The judgments, despite the hardships, despite the difficulties, despite the famines, despite the wars, despite the dictators, despite death itself, despite location, where you like God's like, I sealed my people, I will save my people. That's how it ends. That's what you need to know. Life will be hard. I got you. I got this. It's my world. God knows how to save his people. He knows how to rescue his people. So let's put it together to complete the big idea. God is sovereign over suffering. And he will see his people through it. God is sovereign over suffering and he will see his people through it. This is like rings true of Romans 8. You guys are familiar with this passage. Let me just read it to you. Romans 8. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody is the answer to that. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? (laughs) Nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Shall tribulation? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Should the white horse, or the red horse, or the black horse, or the pale horse? No, none of it. For it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What should we say to that? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. All these things point to the famines and the tribulation and the distress and the persecution. This perspective. Like you may look at us and think through martyrdom and persecution that we're just like sheep being slaughtered. That is not reality. Reality is we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know if you're hearing me. Like that's amazing news. He's saying no matter what you go through, God is like he knows how to save his people. It's like I got you. What are they going to do? Kill you? And then you're with me? Is that what you're sweating about? Like, what are you scared of? He's like, I know how to save my people. So the question is, how do we respond then in the face of difficulty and hardship and brokenness and suffering? Like, how are we to respond to it? Because if we don't know and believe that God knows how to save his people, we will become overwhelmed by the brokenness in our world. We will be filled with worry and anxiety, and our emotion will be, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of it. I just want to quit, and you want to cave into the world. So how should we respond? Let's look at verse 9 through tw- uh, 9 and 12 here. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples, and the languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And what are they doing? with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So church, what do we do in the face of such hardship? we sing now stay with me here, because it's like what wait what do you mean what are you saying now here's here's what's happening in chapter six you get this picture of struggle and judgment then in chapter seven you get this picture of salvation and worship and they're meant to be seen next to each other they're meant to be seen next to each other it's a matter of perspective it's like john get a, a vision of chapter six and he's like you see all this judgment see all this death see all this famine see what's going he's like john's like i'm well aware of this he's like okay john well, I want you to come over here and get this vantage point. you got angels holding back the winds of destruction. And they're going to hold it back until all of God's people that He sealed are rescued. God knows how to save his people. Like, do you see that? It's a, it's a matter of perspective. So what's your perspective? Do you see or do you only see the craziness in our world, the brokenness, the dysfunction, the sin? Or do you see God's sovereign hand over all things? Can you both groan at the wickedness in our world and sing to the God who is sovereign over it? Because, guys, the best thing we can do living in a world under judgment is not to just get all mad or worried or anxious or complain. No, what we need to do is express our confidence in God. To be a group of people that no matter what's going on in our world, we just keep singing. We have such, like, God has got this. He knows how to rescue his people, and they cannot shake our joy. Listen, suffering is a part of God's plan, but the ending is amazing and worth it. Look, look at where he goes from here. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. Now it's hard to see this because we've just been like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the destruction of the world, but this is funny. Okay? John, in his vision, is wrapped up here, kind of being blown away by all this new information. And an elder, in his vision, comes to him and asks him a question. He's like, hey, do you know who these people are? And it's not like the elder's like, seriously, I'm new here too. Like, who are these people? John is like, he's going to John and being like, hey, check this out. Like, turn your eyes here. Who are those people? Like, he's pointing something out to them. And what he's pointing out, he's like, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in their midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the ending. And he was saying, you need to put your suffering in context. When you get a peek at the ending, put your suffering in context. Because that job loss or cancer or dysfunction or injustice, that's just a chapter. That's just a chapter. But this is the story. Like, this is how the story ends. And, And John, the message to this persecuted group of Christians is, the ones that stay faithful, this is what's waiting for you living water, your God wiping every tear from your eye, making all things new. This is what's waiting for him. John wanted the persecuted church to respond to the hardships they were facing with confidence in God. Don't back down. Don't be scared. Don't be all worried and fearful. Your God has got this. And Christians throughout history, whatever dictator they have faced, whatever famine they have gone through, whatever war and hardship they have had to endure should have confidence in God because he is able to save his people and he is sovereign over all the suffering that we face. And for us, whatever it is that you're going through, you should have confidence in God. He is sovereign over suffering and he is able to see his people through it. And the way through it is the blood of the lamb. Look at verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people who have been completely forgiven of their sins because of Jesus Christ. And our confidence to be saved through suffering is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. That his body was broken for us. That his blood was shed for us. That's why we rejoice. That's why we have such confidence. So when you think of your suffering whatever it is that you're going through, what you need to do is get your eyes off of your troubles, your situation, your circumstances, your suffering, and turn then, look at Jesus and his suffering. Because his suffering means that your suffering now has a happy ending. Amen? Remember that as we take communion as a church, that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. And that means no matter what you're going through, has a good ending. Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray for um, just the conviction of your spirit as a loving father. If we, um, we may be people in this room that are just way more marked by this world than by you, that we love the wrong things, we have a desire to just want to fit in, I pray that you would transform that desire to be one that wants to please you, no matter the cost, that we would look to the sacrifice that you made, how your body was broken, your blood was shed, and we would face our own suffering, know that you have secured a happy ending for us, one that is with you forever as our good shepherd, that feeds us with living water and wipes every tear from our eye. pray this in your name. Amen.